The second Bible reading is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, which is found on page 800 of some of the Pew Bibles and on the screen. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Thanks be to God for his precious word. Thanks, Margaret. Um, it would be great if you could keep your Bible open as we work through, because we'll be engaging with the text. And if you're a notes person, there's um, the layout for the, the sermon in the um, handout that you can follow along with as well. As we begin, I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you care about us and that you desire to know us and that you desire to be known by us. And so we thank you for your word and the way that we can know you because of it. We ask that as we sit under your word now, you might, be, you might use it to grow us in our love and dependence upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Responses matter. How we respond to things is a big deal. And so this was never more important or never more kind of obvious to me than on the 8th of November, 2013. I remember, I still remember the nerves as I was waiting for the response I was going to get. I could feel my heart beating in my chest. I could feel the sweat pouring down my face. I felt the sickly anticipation in my stomach as I was waiting for the response that I was going to get. Now here you're asking, what was the 8th of November 2013? What made me, so, made me anticipate so much the response I was going to get? Well, that was the day that I proposed to Cassie. That was the day I asked her to be my wife. And so um, I'll tell you a little bit about how the day went. Um, I don't remember a huge amount about it, to be honest. I was just trying to think ahead to the proposal. But we went out for dinner, and that was good. Well, I'm sure we had some good conversations. I mean, they're not in my head. I can't remember any of them. But I'm sure they were good conversations. And so we enjoyed our dinner together. And then we finished, and I said, do you want to go and get some dessert? So I was thinking, like, we'll go to the place we went on our second date, and we'll have dessert there. But do you know what Cassie responded? She said, no, I don't feel like dessert. 
I was like, oh no, what do I do? My whole plan was kind of hinging on going to this place and having dessert together. Eventually I convinced her, and it's not really that big a deal because it's easy to convince someone for dessert. There's always space for dessert, you always want dessert, and so off we went for dessert. And then while we were there, we kind of got settled and we started talking, and then I gave her this. So I gave her this, and I'll open it up and show you what's inside of it. So this is a book that I made. And so it's a handmade book, and inside of it is a record, is a timeline of every date that we went on. There's just a few photos of them. So there was, um, yeah, there's many pages to this book, and so you can see I've hand-designed little images for each of those. And... Um, so the plan was, so we worked through those. It had, has the date. You can't really see it, but it has the date for each thing. It has what we did on that date. And then at the end, there was this big note that said, will you marry me? And so we're kind of working through this. And I thought it was going to be obvious that this was where it was leading to, but wasn't. And then we got there, and I, I asked the question, will you marry me? Flipped to the last page. And do you know what Cassie's response was? She said to me, have you asked my dad? And I said, of course I've asked your dad. And then, of course, from there she responded and said yes. But it was, it's a great night. It's kind of stuck in my head and I will to the day I die. But it really reminded me, it really showed me how much responses matter. I could feel throughout that whole day, throughout that whole night, the anticipation of waiting for the response. Responses matter. And I think we know this instinctively. So we know this, that responses matter. We know if we bear a heart to someone and we tell someone that we love them, we want them to respond positively. We don't want them to respond like what happens to George, in George Costanza in Seinfeld, where he tells a woman he loves her and she says, oh, we should get something to eat. Like, we don't want that to be a response. We want someone to respond positively to us when we tell them we love them. We know that responses matter. We know when, we're, when there's a fire alarm that goes off at work, we know that responses matter. Because if we just sit there, we respond and we think that this is just a fire drill, it's not a big deal, and then it's not, we could be seriously injured or we could even be killed. Responses matter. We know instinctively responses matter when someone comes to us and they share all their burdens and concerns, the struggles they're going through in life, we know that our response to them matters. Because if we don't respond in a caring and a thoughtful way, then it's going to hurt them even more. It's going to make things even worse for them. Instinctively, we know that responses matter because there's consequences to them. The response of Cassie to my proposal was that we got engaged. The response to a fire alarm could be injury or death. We know responses matter. And what we see with our passage today, what we see with Jonah 3, is it's filled with responses. We see the response of Jonah, Jonah's response, which is obedience. We see the Ninevites' response, which is repentance. We see God's response, which is mercy. And it forces us to think about our response. Because the thing that Jonah 3 shows us is that we need to make a response as well. We need to make a response, and it's vital that we make the correct response, because there's consequences to this. Responses matter. But the consequences with our response to this are much greater than a fire alarm, much greater than a proposal, much greater than anything, because our response determines our eternal destination. This is a life and death response. 
And so as we work through our passage today, we're going to constantly keep thinking about us and our response. And so our passage starts off in quite a familiar way with God calling to Jonah. Have a look at verses 1 to 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And I don't know if you remember back a few weeks ago to chapter 1, but this is a remarkably similar text to what chapter 1 starts like. And so I've put them uh, side by side for you here. So that's Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. And as you can see, they're extremely similar, extremely similar wording. And what it's meant to be doing is showing us this is a second chance. This is a chance for Jonah to do this time what he should have done last time. And so it's a new beginning for him, a new opportunity for him, an opportunity to go and to proclaim God's word to the Ninevites. And so we're then left wondering, well, what's his response? Does he do it? Does he not do it? Does he flee like last time? Does he go? But straight away, our fears are are relieved as we see in the third verse what his response is. So have a look at the third verse with me. This is Jonah's response. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This time, his response is to obey. His response is obedience. We see there's been a change in Jonah. He's not the same man as he was at the start of the book. He doesn't respond in the same way. This time, he responds with obedience. And so, off to Nineveh he goes, which is described in the rest of the third verse. This is what it says. Now, Nineveh was a, great, was a very important city, A visit required three days. So this is a huge city. This is a city that you need to spend three days visiting. Now, uh, this is probably including some of the outlying settlements and stuff, but it's still a huge city. It's It's a kind of metropolitan hub of those days. It's like Tokyo or Japan, uh, Tokyo or New York of those days. Now, Cassie and I went to Japan a few years ago, and it's a great place to go. Melbourne's a good place to live. A very good city, but it's dwarfed by some of these kind of super cities around the world. And so we went there, and one of the things we did in Tokyo was we visited the old palace grounds. And these palace grounds are huge. I reckon they're about the size of the Melbourne CBD, and it's just this open parkland with some castles and stuff around in it. But the interesting thing about it is you're standing in this parkland that's basically as big as the Melbourne CBD, and the whole way around the outside, there's just high-rise buildings. And so you've got this parkland that's like the size of Melbourne that's surrounded by city. As far as you can see, it's just an enormous city. And that's the equivalent of what Nineveh was like. It's this metropolitan hub. It's this huge, sprawling city. It's a mega city. And Jonah goes there and he proclaims God's word, God's message. And you see what the message itself is? Have a look at verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned or overthrown. What a short message. How good's that? That's only five Hebrew words. In English, it's only eight words. And so how good's that? My sermons are usually about 3,500 words. How good would it be if I could just do an eight-word sermon instead? I'm sure that would be great for you. Maybe it would be great for me. Maybe it would be great for some of you. But how short is it? Like it's, we're expecting that he'll go there and proclaim a much longer message, a much fuller message. And all he says is, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, um, it's... 
highly likely that the, the sermon or the message was actually a bit longer than that. But what this is, is it sums up the core of his message, the core of God's message to them. That is, repent of your wickedness. A warning, judgment is coming because of your wickedness. And what it does to us, this message, is it shows us why we need to respond. Because just like the Ninevites, we're wicked as well. And there's a warning for us. The Bible's filled with warnings for us. Now, it's not a warning that in 40 days we're going to be destroyed, but the Bible is filled with warnings of judgment because of our wickedness. This is what the third chapter of the book of Romans says. It says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There's no one who does good, not even one. In other words, all of us are guilty. All of us are wicked like the Ninevites, and all of us, therefore, have judgment coming. And so, in a sense, we're just like the Ninevites. Sure, judgment may not be coming in 40 days, but it will come. And so, therefore, just like the Ninevites, we need to respond. We need to respond to this warning, this warning of judgment that's coming. And so then, we're left wondering, well, if we're meant to respond like the Ninevites, how did they respond then? What was their response? And so as Jonah goes in and he preaches, we then find out straight away. They believe God and they repent. Have a look at the fifth verse. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They hear this message and they repent. They hear this message and they respond by turning back to God. They believe God. And so they fast and they put on sackcloth. Now, uh, fasting on sackcloth were outward signs of inner sadness. It's meant to be this visual kind of demonstration that you're being grieved by something, you're mourning something, and it kind of makes sense to us. We know how uncomfortable it is if you don't eat. If you skip a meal, you start feeling that gnaw in the pit of your stomach. If you skip two meals, it kind of grows from a gnaw to this kind of symphony of noise and if you skip a meal a whole day it just keeps getting worse and worse so we know the uncomfortableness that the fasting gives us and sackcloth is this kind of woven hemp type material I don't know if you know this stuff here so this is what sackcloth is made of you know that itchy kind of scratchy stuff and so what sackcloth is is they would take off their normal clothes and put on clothes made of this basically big sacks again very uncomfortable itchy and disturbing and so both of these, fasting and sackcloth, are meant to be visual representations of sadness. Sadness at this message. They've heard they've been wicked and evil, and so they're giving these visual signs of repentance. Even the king responds with repentance. Have a look at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is incredible. The king, the absolute power and authority of the Ninevites, hears and humbles himself in repentance. Instead of sitting on a throne of power, he sits down in the dust. Instead of being clothed in the finest silks, he clothes himself in sackcloth. It's a powerful visual symbol of his repentance, and it would be a powerful visual symbol for the whole people. It'll be a bit like the Prime Minister coming out of Kirribilli House and living in a tent, or the Queen coming out of Buckingham Palace and living under a bridge. It would be a powerful thing to look at and see happen. It's a powerful response, a powerful response of repentance. 
And then he even kind of gives the official decree to all the people that everyone else needs to respond with repentance as well, from the highest down to the lowliest. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and of his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This is a citywide response from the highest to the lowest. It's from the highest noble and king to the lowest animal. Everyone in the city, from one end of the city to the other city, other end of the city, everyone is to respond in repentance. And as they repent, they're meant to call urgently on God. They're meant to call out, God, have mercy on us. They're to fall on God's mercy. And more than that then, they're meant to turn away from their wickedness. Do you see that? They're to give up their evil ways. Now, to us, that sounds obvious. We say, of course you should give up your evil ways. Like, why wouldn't you want to give up your evil ways? But to them, it wasn't as obvious because their kind of violence and the way they lived was just part of everyday life. It was just a normal part of their culture for them. So it would be like saying to a Melbourneian, you need to give up your love for food and coffee. Or say to an Australian, you've got to give up your love for sport. I mean, these are just things we kind of do instinctively. It's just part of our culture. And for them, as weird as it might sound, violence was a part of their culture. It was just in their blood. It was just a natural thing they did. And yet, they're meant to give that up, turn away from that, and turn towards God. Because that's what repentance involves. It involves giving up things that grieve God. It involves turning towards God. And they do all of this in the hope of mercy. Have a look at verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish they do it all in the hope that God might respond. They do it all in the hope that they might be spared from this judgment that's coming. And they're completely committed to this. They know it's this or nothing. And so they do it and they complete, completely commit to it. And we know that because in these verses, in verses 8 to 10, the Hebrew word for turn and repent, shub, comes up four times. It comes up four times in just a couple of verses. They're completely committed to their repentance. It's a response of complete and utter repentance. And what it shows us is that this is our hope as well. This is what our response must be. Because just like the Ninevites, we're wicked and evil and we've got judgment coming. And just like the Ninevites, the only hope of getting out of it is repentance is casting ourselves on God's mercy, casting ourselves before God, begging for mercy. And so then, ultimately, what it means is everything, both for the Ninevites and for us, comes down to God's response. And so we're left wondering, what is God's response then? How will God respond to them? And did you see what it is? Have a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Then we see God's response, and God's response is a response of mercy. He sees that they've turned from their evil ways, they've turned towards him, and he has mercy. He relents. He spares them. He decides not to send the destruction upon them that they're deserving. And what it does is it shows us a, a kind of picture of who God is. It shows us what God's character is. 
We've seen it right throughout, right throughout the book of Jonah because it's undoubtable that these people deserve destruction. It is undoubtable. They were some of the most wicked and evil people that have ever existed. They took pleasure in torturing people. They killed mothers and babies. They deserved the destruction that was coming towards them. These are wicked people. Even with their repentance, even taking into consideration their repentance, they still deserve judgment. And yet, God responds with mercy. It shows us something about God. It shows us that God is a God of mercy. God is a God who delights in sparing people. Now, of course, it's not true to say that God is only a God of mercy because God is also a just God. God is a God of justice and he will punish the wicked who deserve it. But he also delights in sparing those who turn to him. Those who respond in repentance, God will respond with mercy. And he'll respond to us with mercy as well. When we turn before him, when we cast ourselves in repentance before him, he'll respond with mercy. Because this is where we differ from the Ninevites. See, up until this point, it's quite similar. We're wicked, just like the Ninevites. We're deserving of judgment, just like the Ninevites. We need to respond in repentance, just like the Ninevites. But with the, the way we respond or the assurance of mercy we get is so much different to the Ninevites because all they had was hope. They just had the hope that if they cast themselves before God, maybe God will spare them. But we have something so much better than that. We have the assurance of mercy. We have the assurance of forgiveness because of Jesus. God, in his mercy, sent Jesus down in our place so that when we respond with repentance, we can be assured that God will have mercy. And so it's so much different to the Ninevites, so much greater than the Ninevites, so much better than what the Ninevites get. They only have hope of mercy. We have assurance of mercy. And so then we have to reflect, what is our response then? How have we responded? How will we respond? And I think the answer to that hinges largely on our picture of sin, on our understanding of sin. Because we live in a culture that's kind of lost its view of sin. We live in a culture that loves sinning, but if you ask people what is sin, they can't define it. They don't know what it is. In fact, not only do they not know what it is, they probably don't believe that it exists. They don't think it's a big deal. They don't think it's a kind of, they don't see the gravity and the horror of it. We live in a culture that doesn't believe in sin. And so then it's so easy for us to be influenced by that to think that sin is not a big deal, to think that it doesn't matter when we sin. And so therefore what that means is we don't end up mourning sin, we don't end up grieving our own sin as we should. Now, of course, one side of that coin is that in some sense that's a good thing because we know we've been forgiven and so Jesus' death has taken our sin off of our shoulders. So in one sense it's a good thing that we don't mourn sin. But in another sense... We should still mourn the pain that sin causes. The consequences might be gone, but it still causes pain for God. It's still a, it's, sin is still a bad thing. Sin is scoffing at the one who loves us more than anything. It's ignoring the one who's given us everything. Sin is ignoring the creator and king of the universe. Sin is a big deal. But I wonder if so, so often we simply kind of brush sin aside. We don't think about it because we know there's mercy. And so we don't mourn sin in the way the Ninevites did. 
And so what I think we're meant to do as we work through Jonah 3 is we're meant to think. We should respond in one sense like the Ninevites. Now, uh, that doesn't mean we're meant to fast and that everyone should turn up to church next week in sackcloth. What it means is that we should be grieved by our sin, saddened by our sin. Our response to sin matters because when we lose the gravity of sin, we lose the wonder of God's mercy. Because God's mercy shines so much brighter against the black backdrop of sin. It's like that uh, kind of well-known example, a well-known illustration of when you go diamond shopping, when you're shopping for a diamond, what they do is they get a black bit of cloth and they put the diamond against it. They don't get the diamond and put it against glass or get the diamond and put it against the white cloth because there's no contrast. The diamond shines so much greater when it's contrasted against the black of the cloth. And in a sense, that's what it's like with God's mercy. The diamond of God's mercy shines so much brighter when it's contrasted against the black backdrop of our sin. But when we lose the gravity of our sin, when we don't see sin as a big deal, then we lose the wonder of God's mercy because it begins to feel like we don't need it. I don't need God's mercy because I'm not that bad. And so it's so important that we respond by seeing the mourning, the mourning we need to give to sin, by seeing the gravity of sin, because it makes God's mercy shine so much brighter. And that's what John Newton was getting at in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And so we're going to sing it in a minute, but uh, John Newton was a famous Christian author, a hymn author, and so uh, he started his life off as a slaver. So he worked on slave trading ships and he sailed around. He even ended up captaining a ship that was um, capturing people and taking them and selling them across the world. And so he saw the blackness of the human heart. He saw the blackness of his own heart. He saw what humans were capable of doing to each other. Not when they were forced to, just because they wanted to. He plumbed the depth of humanity and the wickedness of humanity, of his own wickedness. And all of it played a part in his, in his conversion. Seeing the blackness of the human heart helped lift up the wonder of the mercy of God. And so that's why he composed Amazing Grace, that wonderful song that gives voice to the beauty of God's salvation. But there's this kind of great quote from, uh, from John Newton as he was getting older. Uh, this is what he said. He said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. What a great motto to live by. We're great sinners, but God is a great saviour. Responses matter. In Jonah 3, we see different responses. We see Jonah's response of obedience. We see the Ninevites' response of repentance. And we see particularly, importantly, God's response of mercy. And so we have to think then, what's our response? I'm going to pray and ask that we'd respond with repentance. Let's pray.